thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for coming back for the sermon. <laughs> you, I guess you could have stayed out there, uh, but I'm glad that you're here. Um, this morning, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it is uh, what we celebrate in many churches as Pentecost Sunday. Um, this is the uh, 49th day since Easter, but it's the closest Sunday to the 50th day. And, and uh, the celebration of Pentecost uh, reminds us of the reality of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling with believers, unifying Christ followers all around the world. And uh, so this morning, um, we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that was promised and that was given to all the believers um, Peter said that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off from the Lord and whom the Lord our God will call. And so that includes us. We would be included in that Acts uh, 3 sermon that we are far off uh, from where Peter started. But to think about it, uh, for 2,000 plus years, the Holy Spirit has been indwelling people from all around the world, from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And so this morning we celebrate that unity um, on Pentecost Sunday. I'm going to say a prayer uh, for our time together this morning, and then I'm going to ask David Morgan to come and read. This is the final sermon in the series of I Am, the I Am series. And this morning we're going to be in John chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a paper Bible, you can feel free to use your phone. Uh, also, in maybe in one of the chairs in front of you in the rack, there should be one of those gray Bibles. And I think it's on page 526. And so we'll have our last message in the series, the I Am series, covering the seven I Am statements of Jesus. And this morning is I Am the True Vine. So let me pray for us, and then I'll ask David to come and read our text today. Our Father, you tell us that, that your word, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we approach your word today as a starving person approaches his first meal. We pray that you would satisfy us by your word, that you would use it to prune us and to shape us, and to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use your word today to ignite fruit-bearing Christ followers so that as they abide in you and walk with you, they might be found to be fruitful and productive in gospel ministry. I pray that our community might feel the impact of today's message from your word, that as Christ followers dwell with you closely, Jesus, the promise is that you will produce fruit in their lives. We pray that that would be so. And we pray that you would use this congregation and many other congregations in our area so that the gospel may be proclaimed. Your word says that Believing comes by hearing, and uh, so when we proclaim the gospel, it is the mechanism by which the effectual calling goes out to summon those whom you have called to yourself. We pray that you would give ears to hear and eyes to see, that our, um, our minds would be open so that we may understand the scriptures today. Bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. David.
Good morning, brothers and sisters. John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. <clears throat> that if you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thanks, David. Eight times you heard the word fruit in that passage. Ten times you heard the word abide. And so it's no surprise that Jesus is talking about fruitfulness, and he's talking about his true disciples abiding with him. He uses the image of pruning a vineyard. I remember when we first moved into our house in 2012, I think it was. Um, it was a house that we had purchased out of a foreclosure, and it had sat empty for maybe a year or maybe longer. I can't remember. Uh, but when we first saw it, uh, there were uh, trees laying down uh, in the driveway, and there were I don't know, I think we've probably taken down 18 different trees and bushes along the way. I didn't know much um, about pruning, and, uh, and so I bought one of these things, and uh, it worked great for the little trimming of the branches and trees and things like that, but it was not so effective for, uh, for the larger amounts of pruning. Uh, I had to buy one of those little hand saws, and uh, we would use that to prune, uh, but uh, you know, eventually with all the bushes and everything, we had an electric trimmer. I would have brought that in, but it, I think it would have been weird to carry that in for the illustration. But the key point is that um, even now I've got a dead tree in my yard and I've got three stumps in my yard that need to go. Um, we regularly gather branches. There's a stack of branches next to um, our, our little chiminea uh, that the DeStefanos let us have when they went to Guatemala. And we keep a pile of sticks ready to burn right there that fall off of this dead tree. And we're on a waiting list for a guy to come and, and remove this tree. We can all understand this metaphor that Jesus uses. I mean, on the surface, it's not too difficult for any of us to imagine. He cuts off the branches that don't produce fruit, and the ones that do produce fruit, he prunes them in such a way that they receive more sap and more strength so that they can become more fruitful. 
I remember in a prayer time, um, maybe five or six years ago with Charles Gregoire, uh, he, we were talking about some of the different trials that he was going through. And he said, I know that God uses these trials to prune me, but I don't think I have any more branches left to prune. It feels like he's cutting everything away. And we can feel like that at times. Uh, So I want us to understand what Jesus is talking about being the true vine. And I want us to understand um, what it means for us to be fruitful and how, how it is that we're supposed to remain in Christ so that we can prove to be his disciples, so that God may receive glory and so that his joy and our joy can be full. So let's get into the text again. Uh, Let me just kind of set it up to give us some context as we focus on John 15, 1 through 11. Some context to this in John John's gospel, this section is known as the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse, if you think about the 21 chapters of John, uh, the farewell discourse starts in John chapter 13 with Jesus in the upper room, and he begins by washing his disciples' feet. He then goes through a series of examples and teachings, talking about the betrayer, Judas leaves, the disciples ask him questions about where he's going and what he's going to do and what's happening next. All of this takes place in the upper room, and John 13 through 18 describe one full evening. John 13 through 19 is just about 24 hours. That's um, seven chapters devoted to Jesus' last day. If you're looking for a good place to dwell on the words of Jesus, that's a good section. His words are concentrated in John's gospel from 13 to 19. And he tells us that he can't even say everything that he wants. And I think in chapter 16, he says something like, there's so much more that I have to tell you, but I can't, I don't have the time. Uh, He says, but when the helper comes, he will remind you and guide you into all truth. Jesus wasn't even able to say all that he wanted to say, but we have seven chapters in the Gospel of John full of the red words of Christ. These last two I am statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life that um, Larry preached last week, and this statement, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. These last two are made only in the hearing of the apostles. Um, I'm not sure how significant that is, but I went back and tracked all of the sayings. John 6, I'm the bread of life, was directed to the larger crowds that were gathered. Of course, the disciples were able to hear that as well. Um, In John 8, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, that was directed toward the Pharisees and the religious leaders. In John 8, when he said, I am the light of the world, he was talking to the Jewish crowd that had gathered in the temple treasury, which included the religious leaders and his disciples. When he said, I am the door and I am the good shepherd, in John 10, it was directed toward the Pharisees and the religious leaders. When he said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, He was speaking directly, almost intimately, with Martha when she said, um, Jesus said, do you believe in the resurrection? And Martha said, well, I know that, you know, I know he's going to rise in the last day, and I believe in the resurrection. And Jesus said to her, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, And then in these last two, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Really uttered in the upper room, Uh, most likely just to the 12 apostles. Of course, in John 15, it's just the 11 remaining apostles. Judas has already left. 
This is also the only I am statement where Jesus includes God the Father in his description of I am. You see in John 15:1, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So he has, uh, in this metaphor that he's using, he is including God the Father in this description of who he is. This passage also happens um, in root. All right, look back at John chapter 14, verse 31. In John 14, 31, it says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Where are they? They've been in the upper room. They've enjoyed the Last Supper, the washing of the feet, the prediction of the betrayer, the prediction of Peter's falling away, uh, Jesus saying, where I go, uh, you cannot come, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he goes through that entire section, John 13 and 14. And then he says, but rise up, let us go from here. And this section, chapter 15, 16, 17, the high priestly prayer, all the way into 18, verse 1, is en route in the middle of the night, from the upper room on the southwest side of Jerusalem to the east side, across the brook Kidron, up into the Mount of Olives, around into the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's a walking lesson. And I don't know about you, but in the middle of the night, when a group of people are walking, um, there are sort of two realities to that. They're either being so loud that they're waking up everybody. Um, we have a handful of neighbors uh, that occasionally have parties into the night. And, uh, and, and into the night, we can hear their loud voices. And, uh, and so this crowd could have been loud or Jesus could have been uh, sort of walking in a huddle, stopping along the way. But from that position where the upper room is thought to be located in Jerusalem, um, across is about a 25 or 30 minute walk uh, through that way. So Jesus does this time of teaching on the go. And just allow me one additional observation as we close the I Am series. One additional observation about all the I Ams is that Jesus never made an I am statement with the indefinite article. He never said, I am a bread of life, or I am a light in the world, or I am a door, or a good shepherd, or a resurrection in life, or a way, or a truth, or a life, or a vine. Jesus used the definite article in each statement. He used the word the. I am the vine. I am the way, I am the truth, the life, clearly elevating Jesus' claims to authority and to deity. We hear this all the time in our culture. Well, that's your truth, and proclaim your truth. Truth, by virtue of being true, is not affected by whether you believe it or not. True is true, and there is no your truth and my truth and our truths disagree. Truth is just true. And Jesus declares himself to be the truth. It's a statement that takes Jesus way out of the realm of he was a good teacher and he was a great example or he was a moral guy that we should follow. 
The seven I am statements take Jesus out of the realm of just a good human that everybody should follow, kind of like a Gandhi or something like that. A lot of people want Jesus to fit into that category, but you have to cut words out of your Bible. Jesus claimed to be God the Father, equal with God the Father, and he claimed to be all of these things. And that puts him in a category of either an insane person or who he says he is. So let's get back to the vine statement, the final statement. Uh, We need to answer a few key questions to better understand this teaching from Jesus. Number one, who is the true and false vine? If he says, I'm the true vine, it means there's a false vine. Who is the living branch and who is the dead branch? If there are living branches that are pruned and there are dead branches that get cut off and thrown into the fire, we want to know who that is. Really importantly for us as Christ followers this morning, you're going to see how important it is to bear fruit. And so we want to know what the fruit is. We want to know what the purpose, motive, and activity of the Father is in pruning. And then we also want to know how do we remain in Christ. When Jesus says that 10 times in this passage, what does it mean to abide and how do we do it? So let's answer those questions. And the whole point of this sermon is really just, if I can just cut to the end, it's that you would remain close to Jesus. That if you name the name of Christ, that you would so cling to him. You know, imagine a two-year-old clinging to his father's leg as he walks around the house, just being so hold tight to him that he will not let go. A Christian must remain close to Jesus. And secondly, in this passage, the main point is that a Christian who clings to Jesus will bear fruit, will be productive for the gospel. So let's get back into the text. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We want to make sure we understand the figure of speech here. It is just a metaphor. Uh, You can't push metaphors to their very end. They're only meant to give us a limited amount of understanding. So this isn't a thorough metaphor. It just is designed to teach a deeper truth. And so we need to explain the figure of speech to make the symbolic language plain and easily understandable. So let's start with the main characters, right? Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am the true vine. Um, If Jesus is the life, he came to give us life because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. That means that if we have life, we're connected to the vine which gives life. So Jesus being the vine means he is the source of real life. He said in John 10 that, uh, you know, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is the source for life, for real life. Not just for beating heart, blood pumping, existence life. You can say, well, I have life and and I'm not a believer in Christ. The life that Jesus is describing is not just existence life. It is abundant life in a right relationship with God. Jesus says that through me, you will experience that life. That's what the vine means. But there's a deeper meaning than that. When he says, I'm the true vine, it means that there are vines that are not. Jesus is referring to himself 
as the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was the type, Jesus is the fulfillment. You've heard that before. You've seen that in other places when, when Jesus, uh, God the Father, feeds the Israelites in the desert with manna coming from heaven. Um, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, but I am the bread of life. If anyone eats from me, he will be satisfied. The manna was the type. Jesus is the fulfillment. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Jesus stood up and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Israel was the type. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of that. Israel was the planted vineyard. Jesus is the true vine. Let me just um, demonstrate that for you. I won't read all these passages, but if you're taking notes, you can reference them later. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I planted you as a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How have you then turned degenerate and become a wild vine. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was the vineyard that God planted, and he looked for fruit, but because they did not produce fruit, he came and destroyed the vineyard. It's culminated also in Isaiah 27, 2 through 6. That's another song to the vineyard that I won't read. Uh, in Psalm 80, verses 8 through 19, it says he planted a vine out of Egypt. He drove out the nations. And it says roughly the same things uh, about him uh, tilling it and fertilizing it and producing in it and building in it and looking for fruit from it. But Psalm 80 ends differently. It predicts something. Psalm 80, the psalmist says in verse 17, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we shall call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The psalmist identifies the strong son at the hand of the father, who will one day come and restore the vineyard. Now, you, you know this passage. Jesus picks up on this 
In Mark chapter 12, he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the heir. And they said, Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So if Israel was the original vineyard, and it failed to produce fruit, and it failed in its mission to be a light to the world and for, uh, for it to be a, a salvation point for the world. Jesus came and he said, they've rejected me. They've rejected the prophets. They've rejected everybody. So now I will remove this vineyard. I will remove its walls and it will be trampled down. What happened in AD 70? The Romans came and they destroyed the temple. It says, not one stone was left upon another. It took two legions of soldiers to complete the job. That's 2,000, at least 2,000 soldiers. And what happened to the nation Israel? It became desolate. It became desolate until 1947, when Jews began to resettle in the late 1800s, uh, and then through the early 1900s, where for decades, Israel... Uh, Jewish men and women went back into the land of Israel and planted trees. And if you go to Israel now, it is a garden. Uh, it produces fruit. It is a beautiful place. But, but all of this was in response to the vineyard that was supposed to be God's vineyard destroyed. So what's the new vineyard? Those connected to Christ, which means us the church, the Gentiles, that the gospel would be proclaimed around the world and that we would become the vineyard as we are connected to Christ. So that's Jesus the vine. Let's look at the next element in Jesus's metaphor. He says, uh, the father is the vine dresser. Some translations say the farmer, some say the husbandman. I don't know what a husbandman is, uh, but, but God the Father is the vine dresser or the farmer. It's referring to the owner of the vineyard who takes care of the vineyard. And just keep in mind that this metaphor is based on the, the idea of grapes and the cultivation of grapevines. Larry came to me earlier before the service started. He said, hey man, we should have had this sermon in a vineyard. How great would that have been? We could have been in a vineyard and... Uh, 
many of you are too quick to nod, so um, it would have been great as a metaphor for us to be there to see this, what it looks like, or to even have a vine dresser or to have one of those uh, master uh, farmers who can come through and show us how they cultivate the vine so that they produce the best fruit. But this is the reference here. R.C. Sproul writes it this way, to make the vineyard rich in its productivity, the vine dresser went through the rows of vines. And when he saw branches that were producing no fruit, but were taking sap and strength away from the vine, he cut them off. Then he gathered those dead sticks and threw them in the fire to get rid of them. But the ones that were bearing fruit, he cut back, clipped and pruned so that their fruit would increase. Sproul goes on to say that many people in Christian ministry or in Christianity in general, when a person gives their life to Christ, they imagine before them a road of ease and comfort. A road where all their sins are forgiven and they can kind of live in any way they would like to. But Sproul points out on the contrary, our calling as Christians is the highest calling there is. And the idea of being productive in the kingdom is not a result of capitalism's influence. It is the mandate of Christ. He saves us in our futility and he calls us to be fruitful, to be productive. He even makes it clear that if he were to leave us to ourselves, we would be completely impotent. We would produce nothing worthwhile because as the Lord says in this passage, without me, you can do nothing. So God the Father is the vine dresser. He trims the branches. He monitors the conditions of the plants and the field and he harvests the fruit. What are the branches? What are the branches? The branches in the metaphor are the followers of Christ. Some are dead, some are alive, and it's just a, a reality of the picture that not everybody sitting in a church, in a room like this, are Christ followers. Some are real branches, some are not branches. Um, some are um, weeds sown among the wheat. Some are wolves among the sheep. That's just the reality. In every church, you will find a mixture of believers of those who are not yet Christ followers, but are seeking, and those who have resisted the gospel, but are still considering themselves a part of the church. Just write down Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and you'll have a picture of those who think that they are in Christ, and yet in the end, they have depended on their own works or their own self-righteousness for salvation. And Jesus said they will be cast out. Think of the elder brother in the prodigal son. So in every church, you'll find that mixture of people, those who are in Christ, those who are not yet in Christ, but are seekers. There are a number of you here today that you are considering the claims of Christ and you're wondering, should I place my faith in him? In that third category, though, there are those who are not believers at all, and many who we've seen in the past five or ten years in our own culture who have walked away from the faith altogether, who have deconverted or have gone through some sort of deconversion process or uh, have reevaluated their life and in light of our culture have determined that, that Jesus is not who he says he is, and they have walked away or they're about to walk away. That's those categories. Those are the branches, true disciples and false disciples. And by the way, that's, that's the way God um, arranges all of humanity. Those who are his and those who are not. The sheep and the goats. 
Those are the only two categories that God places on humankind. And by the way, in Revelation 19, 20, 21, when the entire population of the world will be sorted, there will be those whose names are written in the book of life and those whose aren't written in the book of life. That's the dividing line, the separating point. It all depends on what you do with Jesus that makes you either a true disciple or a false disciple. How do you know? You wonder this, how can I tell? How do I know if I'm sincerely a Christ follower or not? Maybe you're new in your faith and you haven't found that assurance of salvation. Maybe you've been in church for so long that your heart is somewhat hardened and this is just part of your routine but you don't know if you're sincerely a Christ follower. It would be easy if there was a secret mark somewhere that you could just shine a black light on it and and yes, you know, it would be a green light or a red light or something like that. Well, Scripture, did you know that there are at least 15 explicit passages of Scripture that are tests to know if you are sincerely a Christ follower or not? 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. John 8 describes those who have the Spirit. Uh, 1 John has at least five of them. God doesn't want you to walk around wondering if you're a Christ follower or not. In a book uh, by J.D. Greer a few years ago called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, he says that um, God wants you to have this assurance of salvation, and he likens it to when he leaves his house, He wants his children to know that he is their father. And so he said something like, I never leave the house saying, I'm your dad and I love you and I'll be back. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I'm not your dad. Maybe you're not my child at all. Who knows? Bye, right? Nobody would want to leave with that kind of insecurity every time your dad leaves. Am I his child? Am I not his child? I have no idea. God does not want to leave you wondering if you're a Christ follower. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 uh, through 13, it's a great passage for you to memorize. 1 John 5, 11, he says, uh, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, so that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder about this. You can find assurance of salvation in Christ alone. In Christ alone. And it is one of those issues that you need to nail down. You need to know if you're a branch or a false branch. And I warn you in that way, because I would hate for any of us to be cut off and thrown into the fire. The next element in his passage here is in this metaphor back to John 15 is fruit. Fruit. Fruit is a big deal. Uh, There are two types of fruit that I think this um, is demonstrating. One is our transformation into Christ likeness. And number two is our efforts in mission and gospel labor. So let's just talk about those two fruits. If you're supposed to bear fruit, right? John the Baptist, Matthew 3, the Pharisees come. He says, who warned you to flee? You brood of vipers. Um, 
Repent and produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. James 3, uh, faith without works is dead. How many of you say you have faith but don't have any works? I will show you my faith by the works that God is doing through me. Works are important. Fruitfulness is important. So let's talk about the two aspects of fruit. One is your transformation into Christ's likeness. When you think of the word fruit in the New Testament, Many of you immediately started singing a song from Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit that God is producing in you is a transformed character. You're becoming more and more like Christ. And as He prunes you and takes away the parts that aren't like Christ you become more like him. Just raise your hand if someone has lately mistaken you for Jesus. Anybody? Anybody? Somebody say, oh, I thought, I'm sorry. As I read the gospels and I look at your life, right? That's, that's a, a convicting statement for many of us. But the fruit that God is trying to produce in you is transformation of character. A second aspect of fruitfulness is your gospel labor in the kingdom. You teach Sunday school. Week after week, you pray for your students. You, you prepare a Bible message. You show up early. You run copies. You get all the games and all the things ready. But, but in your heart, you are sowing seeds of the gospel and leading children to a point where they might have a saving faith in Christ someday. That's a kingdom labor that makes a real difference. You lead a small group. Week after week, maybe only 10 people show up and maybe they're not interested in the lesson, but, but you study the word to show yourself a workman approved and you're laboring, knowing that the Bible and its truth as you teach it and wrestle with people in, in that small group and you're hearing their questions and their um, objections and their misunderstandings and you're, you're laboring for the word and that labor, according to Isaiah, the, the rain doesn't go out fruitless. It produces something that God sends it out for a purpose and so that's your kingdom labor. You lead your family and family worship however clumsily it might look. You're going through a devotion and you're trying to sing and you're trying to pray and, and, and that's making a difference. You share the gospel or you pray for your coworkers or you prayer walk your neighborhood or, or you send money to a missionary. You plant churches. You go on short-term mission trips. Our mission is stated in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, is to go and make disciples. Who is here today as a result of your gospel witness in their life over the last two years? Who can you point to that has been baptized and is now a member of the body of Christ partaking in the Lord's Supper and in the congregational life because you labored in prayer and sharing the gospel? Who could you walk up to and say, uh, you know, if it weren't for this person, I would not be in Christ? I can point to a stranger going through my neighborhood in, uh, in the 1990s who knocked on dozens of doors, finally came to mine and, and presented the gospel, and I prayed to receive Christ there, and he moved on. But that's a gospel labor, and I'm fruit of that, and planted two churches and participated in five other church plants. Who's responsible? That man is a part of the fruit that God has borne through my life. Just a stranger going door to door in a 20-minute encounter? He has no idea the impact that he's made for the kingdom. 
The result of your gospel labors is called fruit. You do the work in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God causes the growth. Uh, We're going to hand out a book to our graduates today. It's a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life, based on a sermon he preached uh, a couple of decades ago at a Passion Conference. And he described a couple that retired in their 50s to Punta Gorda, Florida. You remember the sermon probably? And they collected seashells. And and he he likens them to a, a couple who have spent the last 20 or 30 years of productivity for their life. And, and one day, all they'll have to show for it is a collection of seashells. And he also recounts the story of his father as a fiery evangelist and John Piper as a young man and is uh, maybe 10 or 12 years old, seeing an 80-year-old man come to faith in Christ. And in the course of his understanding the gospel, uh, he remembers that man sitting on the front uh, pew just crying and, and crying, sobbing out loud, saying, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, I've wasted it. My entire life, what could be productive, fruitful Christian ministry, has been a complete waste. Are you fruitful, both in character and in gospel labor? Those are the parts of the story that Jesus describes. Let's move on in verse 3. He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What does Jesus mean? Already you are clean. Well, just remember in, in context, just a few hours ago, he washed their feet. He washed all the apostles' feet, all 12 of them. And in the process of that, Peter said, uh, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. Remember that? Peter felt self-conscious. I don't know if his feet were stinky or dirty or whatever, but, but the Lord, his Savior, he did not want Jesus on his hands. It's a humbling thing to have somebody um, serve you in a way like that. And, and Jesus, as he went around and he got to Peter, and Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. There's no way. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. <laughs> what does Peter say? Oh man, well, just wash my whole body then. And Jesus, you know, all right, Peter. um, Those who have already had a bath don't need to be bathed again. But as you walk through the world, your feet will be dirty. You are already clean is the message that he had for Peter. What does he mean? He means that once you're in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, your sins have been removed from you. You are clean. Whenever we baptize somebody, we baptize them symbolically. The water washes away their sins, right? A person who is clean is completely forgiven of all their sins. Clean represents the new birth. In this same context, Judas has already been cut away as the false branch. He's already gone to betray Jesus. He's just with the 11 apostles as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. He's saying, now you are clean. You are in the position of pruned branches ready to bear fruit. Now, Peter still had more pruning to do over the next 40 days, right? But it's not too far into Acts. You know, Acts 1, uh, they're all together devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, In Acts 2, Peter, standing with the 11, lifts up his voice and addresses them at the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of his sermon, Acts 2, 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The pruning that took place in Peter's life resulted in the fruit born on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that beautiful? 
So let's get to the how-to so you can apply this to your life. How do you abide in Christ? Ten times mentioned in this passage. Jesus gives us clear instruction here on what it means to abide in him. First, just to understand the word abide, it can also be translated remain or continue or dwell. Um, The idea is to stay in a close, loving relationship with Jesus. Don't overcomplicate it. To stay close to Jesus. When I first became a believer, at the end of a year or so, my youth minister saw that I was wavering. You know, I'd been a Christ follower for a year and a half. And and as he um, was leaving to go on to a new calling at the end of my senior year of high school, going into my college year, uh, he grabbed me by the shoulders and, and Steve Bush, he said, you keep going. You keep going. You stay close to Jesus no matter what. Every once in a while, I remember him. He's kind of jolting me, and my, my neck was popping a little bit. And, but the intensity in his voice was, you cling to Jesus. So how do we do that? Jesus gives us some examples. Verse 7, if my words remain in you. So one clue in how to abide in Christ is to abide in his word. Verse 7. You think, well, Jesus' words only? Only the words in red? The Old Testament, the New Testament, Paul's epistles, the Gospels. Where should I abide? Just in the words in red? We are to abide in all of the word. Jesus didn't even get to all that he wanted to say. He said, I still have more to say in chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. He said, but the Spirit will come and will remind you of all things. The entire revelation of God is contained in those 66 books of the Bible. And if you're going to abide in Christ... You have to be so saturated with this book that when people poke you or when trials come in your life, what comes out is Scripture. Whenever a person is learning a foreign language, they often report that one indicator that that language is becoming uh, their own is when they start to dream in that language. Does anybody in here speak a, a, a second language? Any couple of people. When you start to dream in that language, it becomes your own. When you're so saturated with Scripture that it is a part of who you are, you are abiding in Christ's words. How else do we abide? Verses 7 and verse 16, Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, indicating a rich and robust prayer life. A rich and robust prayer life. Do you know James, the brother of Jesus, had a nickname? You know what his nickname was? They called him Camel Knees. You ever seen a camel's knees? Yeah, DJ. It's a weird image, right? Camel, you see them, they bend over and there's this, uh, it almost looks like a saucer or a plate or something. It's a, it's a, a built up area of callus that builds up so much because they're on their knees so much. We hear this from the church historian Eusebius who quotes the writing of Hegesippus, right? You know those two very well. Uh, This is said about James, the brother of Jesus. He frequently entered the temple alone and was frequently found situated upon his knees, begging for forgiveness in behalf of all the people. So much so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel on account of always bending down upon his knees while worshiping God and asking forgiveness for the people. That's a rich and robust prayer life from Jesus' own brother. 
If you've ever read George Mueller's autobiography, it's a man in Britain who set up an orphanage and determined never to let anyone know about the needs that the orphanage had. He, he, he would wake up at two or three in the morning and just begin praying about every need. And as the morning hours went on, prayers would begin to be answered to the degree that 10, 12, 15 prayers answered a day. Specific, real prayers. Lord, we don't have food for the 300 orphans. Send bread. And somebody would come around and say, my route got rerouted and this food is going to spoil. Could you use these 300 loaves of bread? Very specific. His biography is filled with specific real prayer requests from a man who was like James, a camel knee kind of guy. This summer, uh, we are looking into developing and hosting a Praying Life seminar uh, with uh, uh, local See Jesus Ministries through Paul Miller. We have a regular quarterly day of prayer and fasting. The, the hope is that we become a praying church. The hope is that by abiding in Christ, we have a robust prayer life. Jesus also says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. That's another way to abide. We abide in his word. We abide through prayer. We abide in his love. Have you ever wondered if God really loves you? Have you ever doubted that he loves you? Maybe you prayed for something and you didn't receive it. Or maybe you pursued God in some extreme way and he didn't respond according to your expectations. Or maybe you wanted God to give you a sign or to speak to you really clearly and maybe it just didn't happen the way you want or maybe you're not getting the things that you want out of life. In some way, these things could deteriorate our feeling that God loves us and it's natural in our humanity just like a toddler, right? Uh, you know, you don't give the toddler a popsicle at 10 o'clock at night. I don't know, maybe you do if you're a grandparent. Uh, but you don't do that normally if you're a parent, right? And, um, and, and the toddler might look at you and say, you hate me. I don't think you even really love me because you won't give me, you know, this thing that I want. It's elementary and childish to think of God's love in that way. But we're prone to do that. But listen to the comparison that, makes, that Jesus makes here. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus was not simply saying that the Father loved him and that they, Jesus then loved them and then they loved each other. He's saying, I love you the same way that my Father loves me. How could we ever understand the depths at which God the Father loves the Son? Jesus says, I love you in the same way that the Father loves me. That's a deep and abiding love demonstrated in his death on the cross in your place. 
He has proved his love for you once and for all. You never have to doubt, does God love me? Look to the cross and you'll see it. The final way that Jesus tells us to abide is to obey his words. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This kind of makes it sound like Jesus' love is conditional. If you keep my words, then, you'll, then I'll love you. But if you don't keep my words and don't obey me, you can forget about that love stuff. The English translation makes it a little bit awkward. It's not conditional. The two clauses are equally true. If you love, you will obey. If you don't love, you won't obey. Because Jesus loved the Father, he obeyed him completely. And in the same way, as our love for Jesus grows, our obedience naturally follows. We obey because we love Jesus, not to gain Jesus' love. There's one final note here in this passage about the abiding life. It's found in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If you want to know if you're abiding in Christ, if you're a true branch, your life possesses fullness of joy. And joy is this deep sense of peace and happiness that believers experience, not as a result of their circumstances. You know, happiness is an emotion that often uh, rises and falls based on what you're currently going through. If your paycheck is good, if your marriage is good, if your uh, house is good, if your relationships are good, if all things are going good, then you could feel a sense of happiness. But joy kicks in despite or in spite of circumstances. And you see flashes of joy in the life of Jesus, who, though Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows, deeply acquainted with grief. Jesus, you see these flashes of joy in his life. In John 4, when he encounters the woman at the well, and he has this engaging conversation. Remember, right before that, Jesus was so exhausted, it says the disciples left him there just as he was, so that they could run to town to buy food and to get water. He couldn't even, he was so out of energy, he couldn't even walk into town with them. They just left him by a tree, by a well. And then he has this encounter with this woman, and, and as he's talking to her about himself and the gospel and the promise and who she is, Jesus starts to be filled with this life. So much so that when his disciples come back, they're shocked. They're like, Jesus, here's your sandwich we got for you. And he's like, I don't even need it. I'm not even hungry anymore. And they even think, well, how did you get food? Did somebody bring him food? And he says, my food is to do the work of him who called me. Jesus experienced this deep and abiding joy at the disciples when they returned from mission. The 72 come back, and in and, and Luke 10, when they returned, it says they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Um, nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then it's an overwhelming sense in verse 21 of Luke 10. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He was overwhelmed with joy. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden all of these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to these little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's an overwhelming sense of joy at being in the presence of Jesus. One more aspect of Jesus' pure and lasting joy. In John 16, he's going to tell them that their circumstances are going to be terrible. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, meaning when he's crucified. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It's the same joy. Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi singing worship songs until midnight. Joy that does not depend on circumstances. Well, let me close this sermon uh, and close this series. Maybe with uh, some prodding that, that your life be fruitful. I prayed at the beginning of this message that this message, that God's word, would ignite for you not a wasted life, but a fruitful life. A life that is abiding in Christ, remaining so close to him that you prove that you're one of his disciples, that you prove you're a real branch by bearing lasting fruit, both in character transformation and in your gospel labors. We pray for the De Stefanos, our missionaries that we support in Guatemala as they labor in the field, that God would bear fruit through them. But you don't have to go to Guatemala or to Slovakia or to make trips in and out of uh, Ukraine to be fruitful for the gospel. Uh, many of these are people that we pray for. We pray for Dan and Rebecca. I sent them a message this week praying for you as you go into, um, into Ukraine and that you're presenting the gospel on those sort of front lines. To the De Stefanos, told them that we're praying for them this week. To friends of ours, Travis and Beth Burkhalter, uh, I learned yesterday that Timans, James and Heather, are going to the mountains of Oaxaca to share the gospel. Listen, you don't have to go across the world to be fruitful in gospel labor. Just go to your neighbors. Go to your neighborhoods. Produce fruit for the gospel. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That poem written by C.T. Studd, in the 1800s reminds us that your life will soon be over. It is but a vapor and a mist. 150 years from now, the only thing that will matter is what you did for Christ. When you're standing before him, only that fruit that is done for Christ will matter. So Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, may we demonstrate that we are true disciples by bearing fruit through our gospel labor and through our transformation into Christ-likeness. I pray that you would use today's message to strengthen us, to prune us, to cause repentance. For many of us, maybe it is to redouble our efforts and to evaluate where we're spending our time. Maybe we are a seed that is choked out by thorny soil, that is so concerned with the worries, riches, and pleasures of life that we bear no fruit. May we be like the good seed planted in good soil that produces a harvest 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. 
as a result of the work of your Holy Spirit in our life and our willingness to be used by you. I pray that you would use today's message to ignite a congregation to works that demonstrate their salvation. For the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.